Welcome to Horses for Future. Horse people can make a difference in the climate change crisis. Together, we're learning how. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step -step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. But this podcast is not about training horses. Instead, we're learning how horse people can make a positive difference for the environment. The idea is a simple one. Our horses need pasture, so horse people tend to have land. We need healthy pastures for our horses, and becoming better stewards of the land under our care becomes a win-win-win situation. It's good for our horses, it's good for us, and it turns out it's good for the planet. Individually and collectively, we can make a difference. That's a great concept, but how do we actually go about creating healthy, functional, biodiverse habitats on our land? Over the past year, I've been exploring this question through this Horses for Future podcast. One of the most hopeful answers I've found comes from the work of Dr. Doug Tallamy. He has launched, in his words, a grassroots call to action to restore biodiversity and ecosystem function by planting native plants and creating new ecological networks. Dr. Tallamy isn't looking at public lands for the solution. Instead, he is calling on private landowners to join what is, in his words, the largest cooperative conservation project ever conceived or attempted. The goal is 20 million acres of native plantings in the U.S. So far, we have talked about two elements in what Dr. Tallamy refers to as homegrown national parks. And those are shrinking the lawn and keystone species. This week, we're going to turn our attention to invasive plants. I'm joined in this discussion by Coralie Palmer. Coralie is a biologist. She's a director of the Indiana Wildlife Federation, and she's on the council of the Indiana Native Plant Society. So last week, we had the pleasure of planting lots of native plants, and this week, we're going to be ripping the invasives out of our gardens and pastures. If I decide, you know, I want to garden with native plants, is it a bit of a case of if you build it, they will come, that expression? You know, if I, yes. if I leave an area alone, will the native plants just come in? Or do I need to actively work at bringing them in? Yes. So you might be very lucky and um, be in an area where there are very few invasive species and you'll naturally have you know, a seed bank of native plants that will, will come up and that's wonderful. And there are a few areas you know, and a few lovely undisturbed parts where that will be the case. But unfortunately for most of us, if you just leave an area, what will come are many of the invasive plants. They are spread either from agricultural areas or from areas that they unfortunately went through periods in the past where they've been used for things like erosion control without full understanding of what then the consequences would be um you know or escaping these things spread by birds um so unfortunately that is often the case so quite often one of the first steps in 
native plant gardening will be to look at your at your property and have to remove the, the invasive plants first and then actively put in the native plants that you want. I would love to cover invasive species identification and control in, a, yes. in, a, in an episode because it's such an important topic. So, so this is this is not management free where I can just sit back no. and, and say, you know, whatever you want to do out there, just do it. That we have had too strong a footprint on the land to be an absent steward. Yeah, that's, a, that's an incredibly good way of putting it. Um, it is absolutely right, sadly, yes. It's not maintenance free or, or you know, but one of the wonderful things about native plants in many of the areas we are is that once we have put them in, they are through evolution wonderfully adapted to the conditions. And so although it's not no maintenance, their maintenance once they're established tends to be very, very minimal. You know, so where I am in the Midwest, once you've established a native plant garden, you often have to, you know, tend it through the first year just making sure it, it gets enough water and is not crowded out by more aggressive things during that first year. But really after that, it, it's often a case of cutting it back once a year and that's it. <laughs> there's no, then there's no, uh, there's very little, um, many of them are drought tolerant in where we are, that would be different in the different areas of the country, but you know, in the Midwest, many of them are drought tolerant. They can cope with the very, very cold winters. They really require very little maintenance and so very little cost often to maintain. Maintain. Once you've got them and they're established, they're often ex- extremely hardy, extremely easy, and very cost-effective. <laughs> so, as well, you know, so those those are some benefits for people who don't necessarily enjoy the the, the insect life as much as we do. But they, they those are benefits. Reducing the maintenance in terms of um, you know, it reduces time and cost, but also that has a knock-on effect in in terms of reducing carbon. You know, they don't you don't need to be mowing, which in itself has uh, will often have um, carbon emissions yes. <laughs> so you know things like that but the, the low maintenance side is a very good benefit depending on which plants you choose you can have a very low maintenance garden if you don't really want to make a huge investment in time or resources but you put in a few native trees they really don't require much maintenance or certainly no more than any other trees or you know a few native woody shrubs the flowering plant can be more just in terms of management just more of an investment but if you if you want a very low maintenance garden just just investing in a few native shrubs can have a huge impact and really not give you any any extra work at all so that's a that's a very good thing there's a row of burning bush ornaments along the driveway and they've these are very old plants. They've, they're probably close to 100 years old. And they, there's very, very little maintenance. And I suspect that if I were to plant a native bush, that it would be the similar yeah. to very little maintenance. You know, that, that those euonymus were planted yeah. a long time ago when it was when we weren't thinking about these things right yeah what would be a sort of a an equivalent in terms of size and shape and would be one of the viburnums maybe yeah yeah so you could yeah so um, there are some wonderful viburnums so things um they live in 
again, I, I know native right, to where right. I am in the Midwest, and I, I think it's very similar, but um, a nanny berry by Burnham or an arrowwood by Burnham would both be wonderful in those positions, or so things like nine bark, which is um, Physocarpus, which are, um, again, beautiful, and they provide multi-season interest. They have beautiful flowers and an awesome colour and, you know, very, very little, little to no maintenance or you know, very, no different from the dining dish. So there are there are some excellent alternatives. One of the things we do have to stress is that the maple tree that I might plant or the oak variety that I might plant in my garden in upstate New York would not be the same maple or the same oak that somebody living on the other side of the continent would be planting. Right, absolutely. And actually there are a couple of you know, a fantastic resources, as well as your local Native Plant Society. The National Wildlife Federation have the Native Plant Finder tool, and you can put your, your zip code in and find out what plants are native, what, uh, and they rank them. It's, very, it's, it's a wonderful tool. They rank them in terms of their kind of values. So again, to Lepidoptera, um, so to butterflies and moths, they'll give you the actual species for your area by zip code. And then there are also the pollinator partnership have eco-regional pollinator planting guides and they consider bees and flies and um, and all kinds of pollinators as well and the Xerxes Society again they have excellent pollinator planting guides and they are I think many of them are regions but you know, are they're done for each region in the U.S. so we can certainly put um, put links to those but there are some very good regional guides. So then let me ask a uh, a different question. So there are plants, non-native plants that I would say would be neutral and some right. that would be invasive in that they are spreaders yes. and that they and they push out native species. So when I'm looking at yes. my garden and I'm thinking about, yes, I would like to have more native plants. I would really like to have vibrantly functional habitat so so that I'm not just planting green plants, I'm planting green plants that function within an ecosystem. But I'm a sentimental gardener and those euonymus by the side of the driveway, they've been part of my landscape forever. And it would be very hard for me to go out and chop them down to replace them with native right. plants. So I'm guessing that in looking at transforming in this, we want to be constructional, we want to work step by step. So there would be some plants where it would be where I could be additive. I could say, you can leave that bush, that shrub, even though it's non-native, but just add some other yeah. things to your garden. Or right. uh, yeah. you know, Yes, it's a beautiful specimen, but the birds are carrying those seeds everywhere and they're creating a problem. And really, if you really want to do this right, that should come out. Yes. Yeah, unfortunately, I think you're absolutely right. And there are are certainly non-native species that, that are, you know, not going to be a problem if they're in your garden and you love, you know, I love 
you know, I have some roses and some non-native plumies yes. that I um, love in my garden and they're, they're, they're just there because I'm sentimental about them but they're they're not doing any harm but yeah the species of class is invasive you really do need to get rid of and again those will vary state by state you can get lists of those uh, certainly regionally of which ones uh, really do have to go <laughs> unfortunately um yeah and it's hard to do i find it very hard to cut down or um, pull out any you know any plant that yes unfortunately there will be those ones that you really ought to get rid of if you're sentimental about your your roses or your peonies or if you're you know some of the ornamental species that then that's of course it's nice to you know you can keep those for sure and just add some more yes. uh, and that's certainly something that um, give links to um, to where you can find lists of the invasive plants in your state and also on how to identify them and how to control them because they often have you know, native lookalikes that can wow. be hard to identify yeah. them but, you know <laughs> so that can be difficult um, because often they can be within the same genus but some are you know non-native and, and are invasive and some are native so yeah <laughs> that's hard and it's hard to think of you know unless it's something like I don't know, kudzu, which is, you see it sort of devouring right. whole houses, as it were. It's hard yeah. to think of some of these plants that, that you have in your garden as being invasive or being a problem. Oh, it's, it's, right. a, it's a pretty plant yeah. that grows in my garden, and, uh, and, what, and it's a nice, attractive specimen. So how can that possibly be a problem? Right. It would be easier to think of it as a problem if it I don't know, had sharp spines or uh, sort of had right. like qualities but to think of yes I need to remove this when it seems to be doing no yeah. harm that's a stretch but I suppose we could also say yeah. but it's also not really doing that much good right even the ones you know they'll have berries that the birds will be eating and so you think it's doing some good because they're providing food but nutritionally they're not comparable to you know some of the native berries that the that the birds would be eating and so you know it, it is it's, it's a hard it's a hard concept but yes unfortunately it's I know I've struggled with it with it in my own yard I, I'm, I'm not the one who likes to wield the chainsaw or the machete yes. <laughs> I have to get someone else to do that um, there are just a couple of other things that we might want to consider when choosing a plant. So once you've decided you want whichever plant it is, your oak or your cranberry or your uh, or and whichever flowering plant, plant you want, there are some differences. Um, so often when you go to you go to buy plants at the garden centre or a big box store, what many of the plants that you find commercially available are what we call cultivars. Um, and when they're a cultivated variety of a, of a native species, they're sometimes termed native bars, but it's, it's essentially the same. It's a, it's a cultivar, so it's, uh, it's not a, a true straight native species. And there is some debate about you know, whether that's okay. You know, you could, um, looking at something like a coneflower, like an echinacea, you know, an echinacea papyria is a native, is native yes. to the Midwest. But there are many, many cultivated varieties of echinacea. You'll see them kind of with a with a name like a white swan or something. Is it the echinacea papyria white swan? Um, that would be a, a native bar. Now there is some debate about the relative merits of these 
But my opinion is that it is ecologically much safer to go for the straight native species rather than a cultivated variety. And there are certain circumstances where that might not be the case. There are a few instances where, for example, with dogwoods, they are breeding varieties that are resistant to that, so disease resistance. Um, and so there, there, there may be certain times when there are conservation benefits having a, a native art. That's not generally why there are cultivars. No, it's generally for aesthetic reasons. <laughs> right. We want to make the flower bigger or a slightly different color to make it showier, to appeal to people. But in doing that, it's possible that we are changing some key characteristic about that flower that that means that its pollinators cannot use the flower or are not attracted to the flower. Right. Absolutely. That's exactly yes, that's exactly um, one of the one of the problems. It's you know, either it can it can change the kind of ecological value of the plant, also there can be gene flow from those cultivated varieties back wow. into the native yes. population back into the straight native populations. And that could act, can actually in some circumstances actually then you know lead to um, extinction of those fragile native, yeah, truly native yeah. populations. And also in terms of, you're absolutely right with um, with Pat, you know, altering how um, wildlife uses those flowers. And there was a really, in, there's been some really interesting research recently. We're still learning about what cues various pollinators and various species use um, when they're foraging. And they've recently, I think there was some research that suggested that hummingbirds can actually discriminate various non-spectral colors so things like uv and they might use those they're likely to use those in foraging and of course when we're changing a plant's color we're only going by the colors that we can see we don't know what the impacts are on some of these non-spectral colors and we don't know how important those cues are for foraging behavior in other species. So this is a whole field of research that's just kind of opening up, but it's something that we, you know, we, we, we think, oh, it looks prettier in whatever color we've chosen, but we don't always know what those impacts will be. So yes, for both the impact on the ecosystem services and the potential genetic pollution. And the other thing is the lack of genetic variation. So part of the reason we, we want very diverse communities is to ensure that they're stable they have a lot of genetic variation and they're able to adapt to changing conditions and environments and that's the basis of evolution is that genetic variation and when we choose a cultivar or nativar very often those are produced vegetatively they're genetic they're basically clones they're not produced by through pollination and seeding they're produced vegetatively and so there is no genetic variation so you are really undermining what we're trying to do. <laughs> right. If, if I were getting nursery stock, this all sounds really wonderful that I want, I want the cultivars. Yeah. They're produced vegetatively so I can develop new plants faster. And I know that there's going to be consistency. So if I say to you that this plant is going to have these characteristics, exactly. yeah. lo and behold, it has these characteristics. This is as tall as it's going to get. This is when it's going to bloom. This is the color yeah. it's going to bloom. It's going, you know, it's all of those are, are things that I'm looking for if I'm growing nursery stock. And if I'm buying nursery stock, I want yeah. I want that surety of 
this is going to be a strong, healthy plant that is going to have these characteristics. And oh, by the way, it's got this really showy blossom and it's a different pink from the pink you're used to. And isn't that fun in your garden? So all those reasons that we yeah. would be choosing a garden plant are no longer the reasons that we're going to be using to choose garden plants. We're going to be saying that, you know, the, the right. original <laughs> version that you would, you know, find it, that you would see as you're driving down the highway before the mowers have come and you're looking at the native plants that are in bloom at this time of year, that's what I want in my garden, not the cultivar. Absolutely, yes. And I know, you know there is debate about that within, within native plants communities because a lot of people enjoy gardening in native plants from a gardening or horticultural perspective. But when we're looking at it from an ecological perspective. It seems like it defeats the purpose of doing this if we're going to then go out and do right. what we've done to so many yes. things. Well, let's now put these, yes. these native plants under an intense breeding program yeah. and transform them. Right, exactly. And that's something to, to certainly be aware of and can certainly talk about sourcing native plants in an episode. But many of the you know, many of the good specialist native plant growers, they will either have straight native species or they will know whether it's a cultivar or a nativar or how it's been produced. Sometimes it can be hard in in some of their big box stores because you know, labeled as a native. It's actually a native art. <laughs> so um, that's just, you know, if it has, if it has a name, uh, you know, if it, if it, it'll have the, the kind of binomial classification, so it'll have the kind of the genus name and the species name. So Echinacea purpurea, whatever. That if it's just Echinacea purpurea, that should be the, the straight native species. If it's Echinacea purpurea, and then a name like white swan or something after, that is a native art. And that's something that we would, I would personally not, be put into a garden that I was hoping to have to increase the ecological function of. That would not be my choice. And then the the, the only other thing, well, there's lots of other things, but one of the other main things when we're looking to buy is uh, neonicotinoid use. So we have to say that again more slowly because I struggle with it as well. It's like it's a uh, it's like tr learning to spell mycorrhizal fungi. That took me a while, so so let's say it slowly. While we're both learning how to say neonicotinoids, there, I did it. <laughs> let's take a break. We'll give ourselves a week to learn how to pronounce this tongue twister, and we'll come back in the next part of the conversation to explain what they are and why you don't want them on the plants you buy. Remember, it's not just horse people living on large plots of land who can make a difference. We all can. It doesn't matter if we are talking about an apartment patio, a suburban lawn, or a large horse farm. The size of the acreage under our care doesn't matter. What matters is that we take action and help to create a change with the land that we do manage. Our horses and other companion animals remind us that we are part of the web of life. They connect us to the natural world in a web of appreciation. And they remind us that not only can we make a difference, it is time to do so. Together, 
we'll learn how. Happy New Year, everyone. Mm -hmm.